Good morning. This morning I'm reading from Joshua 14, verses 6 through 12. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, said, or the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, in Kadesh Barnea concerning you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day 85 years old. I'm still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then, for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out, just as the Lord said. This is the word of God. Thank you, God. You may be seated. Well, good morning. My name is Ryan. For those of you I haven't got to meet, uh, I'm one of the pastors here. Um, You didn't get to see Brian this morning, but he's our other pastor. There he is. Um, it's like, where's Waldo? And I mean, you're wearing a red and white striped shirt. How perfect could that be? Um, <clears throat> so some of you may know that we had a we, Redeemer hosted here in our building this week, um, a, a summit. Pre-COVID, these things were called conferences. Something about COVID made us change our language. It's the same thing. We just call them summits now. Um, Maybe that will be the thing in the history books that uh, 2020, like there's a line drawn in the sand, but I doubt it. Um, We hosted a summit here at uh, our building that was meant to equip and encourage um, rural pastors and elders and church members, um, people who live in rural communities and have a, a keen devotion to see the gospel advance in rural communities, um, in isolated communities out in the middle of nowhere. And so we had over 60 Jesus followers here. Regardless of their context, we had 60 people here from over a dozen churches in rural communities. And so um, I spoke to many people who left this summit really encouraged, feeling um, like they, they got renewed energy to go back home to their church, their people, and advance the gospel, not just in their church, but in their whole community. Um, They they built relationships and and were given um, new energy by the Spirit to to go back into their context and and continue to equip their church for the preaching of the gospel in their city. Um, One of the things that became very clear to me as I listened to some of the speakers and, and talked to a lot of the pastors it became clear to me that Redeemer is a very small part of a very big plan, that God is building his church globally. He's building his church nationally. He's building his church in Texas, even in San Angelo. 
we, we play a, a small but very important part in what God is doing in our city. And it began to make me wonder, what does God have for us in our ordinary, easy-to-miss, everyday, unimpressive lives? What does God have for us as he uses us, he fills his church with his spirit and uses us to build his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven? What does he have for Redeemer? What does he have for San Angelo? See, we've been praying for over two years that San Angelo would experience revival. And when I say revival, what I mean is that people who did not know Jesus would know Jesus. People who did not know his love and come to trust in him would know his love and would trust in him. And that the church would be filled with more of his Holy Spirit. We've been praying for this for two years. This is what I hope for my city, what I hope for this church, what I hope for me personally, that I'd be given more of God's Holy Spirit. And so what is it that you hope that God will do in your life? I used to pray, I, from what I can remember, this was all the way back as early as um, confession of, of Jesus as Lord and Savior. I would pray, God, please make me a real Christian. It was just the bottom of my heart's desire. It's like I knew that there wasn't enough in me to, to be good enough. I didn't even have the words for it yet. I just knew, just make me a real Christian. What is it that you hope God will do in your life? What is it that you hope God will do in the life of your family? in your coworkers, in your employees, in your cousins, your uncles, your aunts, your nieces and nephews? What is it that you hope, what is it that you pray for if this is something you pray for? What do you pray for San Angelo? What do you pray for your family? What do you pray for the people in your life that don't know him or the people that do? See, this, the answer to this question is why God has called each of us to San Angelo. Because he fills his people with his Holy Spirit and gives us a place to live. He puts us in San Angelo so that his spirit would be in San Angelo. And that through us, he would make disciples of all nations. This um, hope that God would revive our city. See, if you look in Joel 2, if you're taking notes, just write down Joel 2 and then go read it later. It's long. There's a section in Joel 2 that God promises in the last days, which we are in now. And I don't mean like the apocalypse is coming. I mean, Jesus has already come. He's already died. He's already risen. We're in the last days. We don't know how long it is, but we are there. And God promises in Joel 2, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on my people. We have this promise to take up, that God will be with us, that our reward for living the Christian life and trusting in Jesus is not that we would look awesome, not that we would do better, not that we would have all the cars in the house and the security, but that we would have God. 
What is it that we hope for? Because when we, when we think about this hope and we start to cast that vision in our own minds, we probably also start to get filled with some anxiety, right? Like revival in San Angelo. I can't even seem to revive my own life. I'm talking about revival in my city. What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to take up this, this um, act of revival in our city, even just a piece? How am I supposed to lead a church in revival in our city? Because this calling that God has given us to be here in San Angelo, I can personalize this and make this all about my performance. I can take a calling and turn it into a performance by just feeling like, man, if I could just be a better preacher, if I could be a better pastor, if I could hurry up and get small groups going and Bible studies going, if I could just see people changing, then I would be doing my job. And then all of a sudden, we're not talking about God's plan. We're talking about my control over my plan. That's not faith. That's wicked. The primary message of Joshua, and we'll see it in Joshua 14, is that God will fulfill his promises. He calls us to trust him, to follow him fully. That's a primary message of Joshua, and especially of Joshua 14. Um, so, we take that hope of what we long to see God do. We take Joel 2, and we long to see God bring this to life in our city, that he would pour out more of his spirit in San Angelo, more of his spirit in this church, that new people would come to know him and trust him, and that the church would be built in San Angelo. We take that hope that the lives of our, our siblings and our relatives and our coworkers would be changed by the good news of Jesus. And then we feel that fear and that anxiety that there's something I have to do with that. And there is, but it's not be better, okay? Just hold on to that. So how do we both maintain active participation in God's promises and trust him and get out of the way? How do we maintain active participation in the kingdom and get out of God's way? Because John the Baptist came and he, he declared in the wilderness, make straight the path of the Lord. That doesn't mean like get all the curves taken out of it. That just means move. God is doing something, let him do it. We must be wholly devoted to receive our holy reward. Holy devoted holy reward. See what I did there? I think that's called a homonym, and I'm not the English major. Holy devoted. I think we have, do we have that slide? There we go. Holy devoted, holy reward. Now, that's, our, that's my sermon title, but it's also the structure. So that's the flow. We're going to talk about what it means to be wholly devoted, and then we're going to look at what is our holy reward. I've already kind of given you the answer, right? The cool thing about this is that Jesus is the object of both. I hope you're not surprised by that. How do we live a life wholly devoted to God? Depend on Jesus. 
and look to him and follow him. What is our holy reward? More Jesus. There's a time in my life when that was not a satisfying answer. That's okay. Joshua 14, the first five verses sets the stage for the rest of the chapter. And it's really kind of, it's an organizational paragraph. It's telling us, hey, we're going to deal with these remaining tribes, but uh, we first need to get out of the way that the eastern tribes have already been settled. We've already settled those accounts. And then we've also got, uh, now we're looking at the remaining nine and a half tribes, but specifically Judah. All right. And so um, Hannah, can you throw up that map? I just want to show who has already gotten their inheritance. And that line, that, that vertical line in the middle of the map is the Jordan River. And on the east of the Jordan River, we have um, Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben, who asked Moses specifically, hey, can we have this land? Because God has called us to be shepherds, and this land is perfect. And Moses and God said yes. Now you see the little blue circle down in the, the bottom left, Um, that Hebron is um, Caleb's inheritance. That's what what we're focusing on today. So we pause the story of of doling out these massive sections of land to tribes. We pause the story to first look at Caleb and his individual inheritance. Why? It does matter. Judah is the first of the remaining tribes given their inheritance, and that matters. We'll get to that later. Caleb is the first and the only individual of Judah to be given his land first. Does that make sense? I messed that up. Judah is first of the tribes. The first of Judah is Caleb. There we go. That matters. Take that thought and just hold on to it for a second because that's going to come back at the end. Why it matters that Caleb is first. For now, we're going to look at Numbers 13. Now hold on, go ahead and turn there, but hold on on your preconceptions of the book of Numbers. Do we have any diehard math people in here? No hands raised. That means there are some of you here, you're just too ashamed Be proud of of your love for math, but I will not be making a numbers joke. Um, So you can can let that go. And I know we're going to spend a little bit of time in numbers. I know that this might be some of the longest time that some of us have spent in the book of numbers. It's the butt of a lot of jokes. There's parts of numbers that can be monotonous and boring. I know, I get it. But numbers can preach, all right? We're going to look at um, the book of Numbers, chapter 13 and 14. We get clued in. Remember, Joshua stands on, does anybody remember the word for all five books? The Torah. I heard some, some rumblings. Joshua stands on the Torah. That means that, that the book of Joshua uses Genesis through Deuteronomy to interpret what is happening in the story of Joshua. It gives meaning to the story of Joshua through the Torah. And this is a perfect example. Caleb comes back. And hopefully, if you read this this week, you were like, wait, Caleb, I forgot about Caleb. Because Caleb hasn't shown up since this story. 
He hasn't, he hasn't shown up in a big way since this story. And so uh, we see in Numbers 13 and 14 that Moses sends out some spies uh, in God's direction. And so um, Caleb played an instrumental role in Israel's taking up the promise that God has given them for this land. So we'll look first at Numbers uh, 13. Now, I don't have this on the screen because we're just going to be flipping through. And I didn't want to stress Hannah and Chandler out. And so um, if you want to just maybe close your eyes and listen or read along, and there's Bibles in some of the chairs in front of you if you don't have one. Numbers 13, 1 through 2, and then verse 6 will tell us what's happening. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. So this is before the book of Joshua. We're looking into the past. From each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. Now down in verse six, because he lists all the people. We really want to focus in on verse six. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. So we see Moses sends out people to be spies. He singles out Caleb. Now let's look at um, what report the spies come back with. Many days have passed. The spies come back with a report on the land. Numbers 13, 27 through 28. And they told him, this is the spies reporting to Moses. um, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. It's a good land, prosperous, fertile. There's a future there, blessing. However, uh the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Now, real quick, the descendants of Anak is this like almost mythological group of people that were these giant men with seemingly supernatural size and strength. They were terrifying. They were. So it makes sense that the spies come back afraid. Now, anytime that a man gives bad news in the story of God, We should keep reading until we see the word, but. Because it's going to happen. If a person gives bad news in the story of God, keep reading because there will almost always be a but. Now the but here is in Numbers 13.30. And then we're going to look at um, what else these guys have to say in in 14. Numbers 13.30. So we're terrified These giant men live there. The cities are strong. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Why did Joshua, why did Caleb believe this? Even though his report was the same. Yeah, the cities are strong and fortified. Yeah, the people are giant and and incredibly strong, but we can overcome it. Let's look down at uh, chapter 14, verse six through nine. Told you we were gonna spend a long time in in Numbers. 14, six. And Joshua, the son of Nun, 
and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. They were livid. They tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them. Listen, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. What was it that motivated Joshua and Caleb's report that, yeah, it's bad there. It's gonna be hard, but we can do it. What gave them the motivation for that? The presence of God. And how were they aware of the presence of God? They were present to him. They lived a life that needed God. It depended on God. We see in Joshua 14, and we'll look here in Numbers 32, if you'll turn there, last one, I promise. Numbers 32. What does that mean? How were they so aware that God was there and the other 10 guys had no idea? This is not that sermon. But Joshua and Caleb trusted God. They depended on God to accomplish his promises. And they weren't afraid. But the other 10 who were not aware of the presence of God were terrified. Not this sermon, just wanted you to have that. Numbers 32. Why Caleb? Why is Caleb showing up in Joshua 14? Why was, he chose, why was Joshua chosen to be the leader of Israel? What makes God favor them so much? Numbers 32, 11 through 12. I had that wrong in my notes for a second. Here it is. Surely none of the men who came out of Egypt from the 20 years old and upward shall see the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Why? Because they have not wholly followed me. None except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have wholly followed the Lord. They knew they could accomplish the will of God because God would accomplish the will of God. They knew that he was there, that he was leading them, and they followed him. They led their lives wholly devoted to him. Let's look at that. What does a life wholly devoted look like? Now, we could use Caleb and Joshua. We could, but we're not gonna because we have a privileged position in history that we can look back at Caleb and Joshua, but we can also look a little less far back to Jesus. I'm gonna use um, Mark 8. If you wanna go ahead and flip to Mark 8, 34. 
while you're turning there, as Christians, as, as people who follow Jesus, we trust that he has saved us and we follow him wholly devoted, right? As Christians, the purpose of our lives is to learn from him. Matthew 11, we learn from Jesus. We take his teaching and instruction upon us. And he shows us how to live. This is called the way of Jesus. When we follow his habits and his rhythms, this is the way of Jesus. A life wholly devoted to God, perfected by the Son of God. He perfectly exemplifies um, what it means to live wholly devoted, and then he clears the path for us. There are no obstacles other than our sinful flesh that still weighs us down. And even that is given to us as a grace to say, just wait a little bit longer. Just wait. I'll take care of that too. So Jesus leads the example on what a life wholly devoted to God looks like. And then he clears the path for us and he leads us in that way. So a life wholly devoted, excuse me, the wholly devoted way of Jesus shows us two things. It shows us what to take up and what to give up. A wholly devoted life following the way of Jesus shows us what to take up and what to give up. We're gonna use the book of Mark, primarily Mark 8.34. That's why I had you turn there. Can't preach the entire book of Mark in just one sermon within a sermon. What was it that Jesus took up? And what does he call us to take up? Now, before we get to verse 34, the first eight chapters of Mark is this ascension into learning who is Jesus and why is he here? So the structure of Mark is like a mountain. In the first part of Mark, the first eight chapters, is this ascension into knowing who Jesus is. And on the way up, he declares to us, the kingdom is coming. The kingdom is coming. Healing for your body and your souls is coming. The garden, what we had in Genesis 1 with God, it's coming back. Peace and harmony with the Father and with one another. It's coming. Follow me. It's coming. This is the first eight chapters of Mark. The pinnacle of the whole book of Mark is verse eight, chapter eight, verse 34. What God, what Jesus takes up, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. We're not quite there yet. What Jesus takes up in these first eight chapters of Mark is the promises of God. Now it's not him saying, here I am, I'm gonna go fulfill these because that's not what he's calling us to do. What we're called to take up is to believe the promises of God and depend on him to do it. We're, we're called to pick up, to take up a life dependent on God. Now, when I said our holy reward is Jesus, and to some of us that just feels a little bit flat because we want something to do. We want to know what other Christian things can I add to my life to make me a better Christian? 
that fell flat because that's where our desires are. That's, that's where our flesh wants to take us. And so it probably could also feel flat when I say to you, what Jesus calls us to take up is not more energy and more motivation and more gumption to do it. What he calls us to take up is a life dependent on him. It's so simple, but it's not easy. Getting there is not easy, but when we get there, man, it's easy. He promises that in Matthew 11. What we are called to take up is a life dependent on God. That's so important that Mark spends the first eight chapters of his story of who Jesus is telling us that. Now, what we're called to take up and what we're called to give up are intimately connected, deeply connected to one another because what Jesus took up in knowing that he was sent by the Father to to accomplish these promises, to fulfill this reunion between humanity and God, creation restored, Genesis 1 restored, what led him there and God's promises to motivate him led him to a place of what he then would give up. That was his life. In Mark 8, 34, this pinnacle of, of Mark's gospel story, now we'll get to read it. I'm sorry. I'm so eager. This pinnacle of, of Mark's gospel story shows us what it is that Jesus gave up And then Jesus just flat out calls us to give up the same thing. Mark 8, 34. And calling the crowd to him. You see, he was talking to um, a couple of different people specifically in this group. And then all of a sudden he just declares to the whole crowd. He says, everybody listen. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, then follow me. If you want to follow me, then follow me. If you want to follow me, then just follow me. Wholly devoted. Wholly dependent. So what does taking up this dependent life look like? It looks like denying yourself. It looks like When we trust in God, the only proper response to him making these promises and us picking them up and saying, yes, I believe those promises. The only thing left for us to do then is to say, then I don't get to decide how that happens. When we take up the promises of God, we give up our will to do them. A holy devoted, a holy, dependent life on God is picking up your cross. Picking up your cross is a a Christianese way of saying we put to death our own wills, we set aside what we think is the best way to do things, and our impulses for control, whether it's in our lives, whether it's in the lives of our family and our friends or our church or our city, we put down our desire to control things, and we just say, God, This is what our prayer life sounds like. Father, 
Not my will, but yours be done. If it wasn't clear, this is our application. We take up the promises of God and depend on him to fulfill his promises. And then we lead a prayer life that says, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus lives this perfectly holy, devoted life. And he gets his holy reward because he's with the Father now. And, and the reward of Jesus is not just that he gets reunited with the Father, but that he gets his people right here, all of us. He gets us back. He lived this perfectly. He submitted so devotedly to the will of God that it led him to the cross. It led him to be mocked and tortured and spat on, to have his clothes taken off of him. And then they nailed him to a piece of wood. And not only did they nail him to a piece of wood, they put him in an incredibly vulnerable position naked, covered in his own body fluids. And he said, it is finished. I have submitted to the will of my father and won my people back. Join me. Father, not my will but yours be done, led Jesus to die. And he calls us to take up those same promises of reunion with him and life with him, but it's gonna cost us everything. And I don't think we understand what I mean when I say everything. Earlier, I mentioned that Caleb coming first out of the tribe of Judah was important. And in, in, in this part of history, in Joshua 14, we can flip back to Joshua now. In this part of history, it matters who comes first. And I know that we already gave the east side lands and we've already talked about who, what the Levites are getting but the people that come first in this section, in these remaining nine, it's emphasized and repeated so much that this is, this is Joshua saying, these are the first people, all right? Listen in. What's first is the, the real inheritance. Who gets the real inheritance is who comes first. Now, Caleb of the tribe of Judah. Let's read uh, verse six again. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, which we don't have time for that. Gilgal is important. And if you're interested in that, just get online and, and just look for it. Why is Gilgal important in Joshua? It'll tell you. The people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, the Kenizzite. It doesn't say he's from Judah. And the Kenizzites are not a group of people within the tribe of Judah. 
The Kenizzites are descendants of Kenaz, who was a descendant of Esau or Edom, who was the enemy brother of Jacob, also known as Israel. Did you guys just get chills? Because I did. Caleb was the son of the enemy of God's people. Esau and Jacob, enemies. In their history, enemies. There's a moment of questionable reconciliation. You're like, I think that that worked. I don't know, maybe. Let's keep reading. The way that we read the Old Testament, whenever we see someone from Esau, from Edom, from a tribe, from those people, enemies of God, not chosen. Esau gave up his birthright. He rejected God's plan. This is where Caleb comes from. And who is he adopted into? God's people through the tribe of Judah. Caleb illustrates and foreshadows for us that the promise of God reconciling his people, using this land to bless his people, is bigger than his people. It's for all the world. The story of Caleb not coming from Israel, but being adopted in, and then getting his inheritance first, just doubles down on God's promise to fulfill this prophecy, this promise that was made in Genesis 3, that was reiterated in Genesis 12, and throughout the Old Testament to say God's promise is not just for the people who get lucky, not just for the people who have the right stuff, not just for the people who were born into the right family, who have enough money, who have the right status. It's for everyone. You don't have to be cleaned up for this. Caleb could not deny his ancestry. He could not deny his history. He walked in a messed up, broken man, and he was adopted into God's family, given a place to belong and a calling to see the story of God fulfilled in Hebron. I got to remember to breathe sometimes. See, what Caleb deserved because of his ancestry was separation from God forever. He was not in the people of God. In fact, he was so much the definition of God's enemy based on his ancestry. What he deserved was separation from God, rejection from God, because his forefathers rejected God. And let me just be clear, scripture, specifically Romans 3, tells us we're all in the same boat. We were all born into rejection of God. But, remember the but? Read Ephesians 2. But God. See, Jesus knows in his promises that it's not just for Israel. He knows on his march to the the cross, it's not just for Israel, it's for everyone, that his holy reward is not just a small group of people, but the entire humanity. Our holy reward 
for a holy, devoted life is Jesus. And his holy reward is us. Just that quote from Song of Solomon, right? I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Genesis 1 restored. First, in our souls. That's, that's, that's today. Our souls restored. The world is still broken. Creation is still broken. Nature still kills people. People still kill people. Bad things happen. But our souls are now restored. And we're waiting for the day when all of creation will be restored. Now, how do we get there? I've already hammered on about this. We pray. We lead prayer lives that confess, Father, your will, not mine. We live dependent on God. We can't change our behavior. We can change our behavior. We can't permanently change our behavior. Listen, we can change our behavior. That is not the goal of Christianity, to look Christian. We are not Christians if we're striving for behavior modification. That's not a hobby horse of mine. That's the truth. If we are longing to just look better, to act better, to do right, to be good enough, we're not Christians. You have to hear that. We are the most susceptible people to believing that we know the truth when we don't. To live a a holy, devoted life means a life entirely dependent on God while we pray, Father, your will, not mine. Father, your will, not mine. That's the prayer that led Jesus to the cross, that made it possible. Do y'all remember John last week? We had our, our friend John Bautista come and preach. You remember what he said? That Jesus praying, Father, your will, not mine, is what gives us the holy reward of Jesus. We get God forever because of that. The only proper response is then for us to pray that way. So what is it that you long to see God do in your life? Maybe there's someone sitting right next to you and you pray for them frequently. What is it that you long for God to do in their life? Maybe what is it that you refuse to pray for somebody? But you know, you may, you maybe you should. How do we get there? How do we, get, how do we take up Joel 2 for this church, all the church in San Angelo, more of the Holy Spirit? How do we do that? Caleb at the end of uh, chapter 14, at the end of what Lauren read, uh, verse 12. He says, it may be that the Lord will be with me. What it sounds like is that, that Caleb is going to Hebron saying, maybe the Lord's gonna be with me. I don't know. That's through our Western English lens, through an ancient Hebrew lens. It's a classic confession of I have my plans and maybe God's gonna lead me in those plans, 
but his will be done, not mine. It may be that the Lord will be with me is a classic Old Testament Hebrew way to say, Father, not my will, but yours. And so when we put in front of us the promises of God, that that one day we'll be united with him, one day creation will be restored, one day we'll have peace among our brothers and sisters, one day all the striving will just be done. One day my neighbor will be saved. One day my brother will be saved. One day my, my daughter will be saved. One day this person who I go to church with who thinks they're a Christian, but man, I don't know. Maybe, maybe they'll see that promise. We put that in front of us. We just depend on God to fulfill that. Then he calls you in to that mission. And the only way for us to do that is to surrender. And so when we take communion, we've got some on the sides, we've got a table in the back. When we take communion, that is what I want you to pray. That's why I want you to pray for the rest of your days. Father, not my will, but yours be done.